turn back to Proverbs chapter 2, and uh, we're going to finish up chapter 2 today, and hopefully, Lord willing, and uh, we'll be moving on with some other things we want to look at in the Bible, getting ready for our time where, in just a short time, we're going to start coming through the whole Bible book by book, uh, not trying to teach every book, uh, but basically giving you a, an understanding of how the Bible goes together. We've spent a great amount of time talking about your own personal relationship with the Lord. And now we want to we wanna come to the point where we just really focus on, on how that uh, all comes together for you. And I hope next week, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to preach a message next week on, uh, you know, all the excitement about the uh, passion of Christ and all of that and all the different characters in it. I told you when we did our study, we did a study on Thursday night, came through a biblical. I told you that the probably the most interesting character in there, in the whole movie, as in the whole story of the Bible, uh, and the Bible portrays a lot of different characters in a lot of different ways, but I think one of the greatest character studies in that whole series is, the, is Pontius Pilate. And I'm going to preach on Pontius Pilate next week. So it'll be a time that you can bring your friends, unsaved people, you know, bring your family, whatever, and and uh, let's, uh, let's use the time that God gives us, but uh, I'm going to preach on Pontius Pilate next week, and uh, we're going to look at some things, and I think it'll be an interesting thing for you to see how the Bible uh, takes those stories and really does some things through the Scriptures to show you some things in our own lives. So we'll plan on that next week at, on Easter, and then we'll, we'll just go from there as the Lord leads us. But we're going to finish up Proverbs 2 today, and I told you, probably no greater chapter in all of the Bible has really helped me in my own personal relationship uh, and growth uh, other than the book of Proverbs. And specifically, Proverbs chapter 2. As I told you, and uh, throughout our study, that the first five chapters of the book of Proverbs, he starts out talking about my son. And everything, every chapter starts out that way. And uh, it's, or excuse me, first seven chapters. And it all lays itself out along those same lines. And uh, after chapter 7, then he starts to deal with doctrinal issues that you need to know. It's almost like the first seven chapters really focus on the intimate things, that he's talking to you personally, that he's saying, before you ever get into my book, Proverbs, and you ever really get into the meat of it, this is what you need to know. And he shows you not only what you need to do in those first seven chapters, but he shows you what the book of Proverbs and the Bible itself will do for you. So we've talked about that, and that's where we're coming to the end of this today. So if you're just coming in on it, you know, that's where we've been. I don't want you to think that I'm just, you know, picked this subject this morning to talk about. We're coming through a long series in here and, and coming down through the end of it. In fact, we talked about in Proverbs chapter 2, you know, we talked about the first five verses there where it really focuses on the things that you need to do. Receive the Word of God, hide the Word of God, incline your ear, apply to wisdom and all those things. And then we've talked about... Uh, now what the Word of God will do for you and how it really will impact your life. In fact, <clears throat> when you really look at the book of Proverbs, you know, in your Bible, there are certain numbers that mean certain things. We call it Bible numerology. And you're going to find that there are specific numbers in, that we use every day that in the Bible they mean specific things. For instance, God's perfect. So the number seven in the Bible is the number of perfection. Man was created, uh, you know, on the sixth day, so the number of six in the Bible is the number of man. Um, death in the Bible is always associated by the number five. 
And I'm not saying you can find every number that will line out that way, but there are certain numbers in the Bible uh, are, are out that line out that way. The number 13, the reason why it's an unlucky number, because it's Satan's number. And uh, it, it, you can go through the Bible and you can find all kinds of illustrations to show that. We're not, that's not what we're looking for today. I want to show you that in the Bible, the number 9 means fruit-bearing. And when you find the number 9 in the Bible, it's always going to be associated with bearing fruit. Now, you go to the book of Galatians, there's nine fruits of the Holy Spirit of God in the book of Galatians. Abraham was 99 when he bore that fruit and got Isaac. It's just consistent all the way through the Bible. And in the book of Proverbs, lo and behold, the book of Proverbs, the Bible says, teaches as you come through it, we'll do nine things for you. Or it's four, nine things you can accomplish. But first of all, the Bible says the book of Proverbs is to know wisdom and instruction. Second thing is to receive the words of understanding. The third thing is to perceive the instruction of wisdom. The fourth thing is justice. The next one is judgment. The next one is equity. That's balance. The seventh one is to give subtly to the, to the simple. The eighth one is to give the young man knowledge. And the last one is, and this is where we started last week, is to give the young man discretion. Now, discretion is the number one thing that you need to get as a child of God. And as you, when I, when I talk about you being discipled or I talk about me teaching you the Bible one-on-one, you see, that's my job. My job is to help you figure out the Word of God. And in the process of that, there's some things that you're going to get. But the bottom line that you ought to be striving toward as a child of God is to get discernment, discretion. Discretion is the ability to use all of the wisdom that God gives you. A lot of people study the Bible. A lot of people read the Bible. Well, you could go to other churches in this town today where there's people that study the Bible, you know, all week long. I mean, that's all they do. But they don't understand the Bible, and they teach a wrong way of salvation. And many people that are going there, I mean, don't get so naive that you think just because it's a church, you know, that it's God's church. The Bible tells you over and over and over again that there's false religion, there's false teachers, there's false preachers. You've got to deal with that reality. And you've also got to understand that God gives you the discretion, the discernment is the ability to be able to find out what is right and what is wrong. It's as simple as that. That's what the Bible does for you. It fine-tunes your senses to the place that in time in your own life, you can look at circumstances, you can hear a man preach, you can go to a church, you can sit down and talk to somebody about this, you can turn on the radio, you can watch TV, and suddenly we know now that the world, its whole format, its whole platform is to deceive you. Everything in this world is run by the devil. The Bible says that he's the prince and the power of the air and he's the god of this world. And his whole function is to deceive you, to get you off track what is right, to get you uh, into wrong. Now, if you're unsaved, he's going to do that so he can damn your soul to hell. He's going to blind you. He's going to show you, give you everything that you could want. He's going to uh, get you to believe the lie that, you know, you, life is what you make it and, and uh, you know, and you keep going on and looking for the, you know, the gold at the end of the rainbow and you try this and you try that and by the time you're 85 years old and you're ready to die and hit the tombstone, you've come to the conclusion that all that was a sham, that everything you tried to do and everything you tried to apply yourself with, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, was folly. And it's, it's over. And you have been deceived. If you're, and that's the trick of the devil. He wants to deceive you as an unsaved man, unsaved woman to think that religion will save you, that you can do it yourself, or whatever, education, whatever. Everything to mask from you the truth. 
And that's what he does. Now, if you're a saved person, then he wants to confuse you. He knows he's not going to get your soul in heaven. If you're saved this morning and you're truly born again, the devil knows he can never get your soul in hell. He knows that. There isn't anything he can do because you're bought for, you're paid with a price, you had nothing to do with your salvation other than receiving Christ. God did the work. There ain't a thing he can do about it. He doesn't like it, but that's the facts. So what he does is he knows in a Christian's life that he cannot get your soul in hell, but if he can keep you confused, if he can keep you all messed up, if he can keep you stupid, if he can keep you blinded, if he can keep you messed up and with your emotions, your feelings, and you never get your life sorted out, though he'll never get your soul into hell, he'll get a hundred other people in hell that you might have reached with your life, reached with your testimony, if you'd have got discernment and discretion. When a man or a woman gets saved in this church or any other church and we win them to Christ and show them the Bible, they now have the platform in their life, the foundation to get to a place where they can figure things out. They can find out what is real versus what is wrong. When a man gets saved and he gets into the Bible, he has the ability then to come to it, to fine-tune his senses to the place where he can discern between good and evil, right and wrong, what is real and what is phony. Now that's what the whole book of Proverbs is about, and specifically chapter 2. And last week, we talked about down here in verse 10 where it says this in chapter 2. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul. In other words, when you've done everything verse 1 through verse 10 says, Discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee. Now watch. To deliver thee from the way of the evil man, and from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked whose ways are crooked, and they froward in their paths, to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words, which forsaketh the guide of her youth, and forgetteth the covenant of her God. For her house inclineth unto death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. That thou mayest walk in the way of good men, and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it, but the wicked shall be cut off from the earth, and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. Now, Father, we ask you today to give us wisdom and insight into the Word of God. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. And we pray, Father, that you open up our hearts, open up our minds, that we'll receive the Word of God that you have uh, so graciously provided for us today. Lord, look inside every one of our hearts. May my heart be as clean as it can today as I put forth your words. And may the people's hearts be as clean as they can be today, that they may receive those words. Lord, let us look inside, and any unconfessed sin in our life, Lord, even in this moment, may we ask God to forgive us, that we might receive all of the things that God has for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that everything the Bible does for you brings you to the point of discretion and discernment. And that discretion and discernment focuses on two aspects. Last week we talked about the evil man. And I showed you how that the evil man was the theologies of man. Unregenerate, unsaved man coming up with concepts about science, art, music, whatever. 
We call them theologies of man, psychology, uh, psychiatry, theology. On and on it goes. All and we and we trace that through history. And I showed you how that the devil began to take the teachings of the Word of God and he began to corrupt them to the place that he put forth many other things that are, are against the Bible that have nothing to do with the Bible. And the Bible gives you and I the warning that we are to bring every thought into captivity under the beings of the Christ. And we are to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, the Word of God. So we know from that, we know from that that the Bible gives us discretion. It gives us the ability, that gives us the ability to discern when we read something. And I've told you this before. I've told you this before. And I, I, I continue, will tell you this. One of the greatest things you can ever do, if you want an education, if you want a real education that you can stand up to anything or anybody on the face of this planet when it comes to that book, let me tell you how to get it. It's real easy. First thing you do is study that book till it comes out your ears. Learn it. When I get up here and, and say, I'll spend an hour a week with you studying the Bible, you should have been up here before I got the words out of my mouth saying, put my name down. You got a list up here I want on the list. No, I want on the top of the list. Bug me to death to learn the Bible. Do everything you can to learn the Bible. When I give you something to do, do it. The way I started the Bible learning years ago, and I didn't know anything about the Bible, I wanted to learn it. I went to a Thursday night Bible study, much like the one that we have. And in that Bible study, you was allowed to ask any questions you wanted to ask about the Bible too. That's how I learned the Bible. I never asked one question in all those years. I went to that Bible study. Barb and I went to that Bible study for five or six years. I never asked in six years one question about anything in the Bible. And look at me today. No O's, no O's. <laughs> okay, don't look at me today. I don't care. Hurt my feelings. I never asked one question. You know why? I'll tell you why. Here's the key. In those years, I never asked one question about the Bible. I let everybody else ask that question, but I had a goal. My goal was this. My goal was that I listened to every question, I went to every verse, and as fast as I could, I wrote down that question, wrote down where they went, wrote down the answer. And you know what? In an average night, I might have gotten two or three questions about the Bible, sometimes more, sometimes only once, like ours, you know. Sometimes we somebody asks one, it just takes the whole night. Otherwise, you get three or four things done. But I didn't care. My goal was, I wasn't there to ask any questions. My goal was I was there to learn. And I learned by simply doing this. Now, you need to ask questions. But for me, this is what I did. And I asked questions. I just didn't ask them there. I went home and I said, here's my goal. You know what? I'm going to write everything down tonight. And next Thursday night when I come back, I'm going to take from then to now, one Thursday to the other, that I'm going to go through my Bible and I'm going to catalog every question. I'm going to put it in my Bible. I'm going to write every question down. I'm going to put everything in there. And by the time I come back next week, if somebody asks me that question, I'm going to know the answer. You know what? You do that every week. You get four questions a week. You do that for a year. That's 40 questions you got to answer. No, more than that. How many? Now, John... Okay, fine, fine. See, I got a hundred done because I was putting in overtime. But anyway, that's how you learn it. 
No, I'm not saying you don't ask questions about the Bible. And I'm not saying that... I, I'm showing you. I'm showing I'm making a, an illustrated point. I'm showing you. You've got to get into that book and grab it. And when you get it to the place that you really know that Bible, you are sound mentally, mentally and spiritually in the Bible. Oh, I probably had to define that. When you are sound spiritually and mentally in the Bible. You know what that means? That means nobody can shake with what you believe. That means you can sit down with a Jehovah Witness and he doesn't phase you a bit. That means you can sit down with the Church of Christ and they won't bother you for a second. That means you can sit down with whoever you, or whatever you find, wherever, and they will not shake your faith. Most Baptists, I could confuse them in 15 minutes to the place where they'd be wondering. I used to do it. When I used to preach places and I, I'd try to and, and motivate people about the Bible, I'd say, you know what? This is the Baptist church. You all know the Bible? Yeah, Brother Bob, we all know it. You know the Bible says there's three raptures? Which one are you going in? Three raptures? Yeah, prom up here, those three times. Bang, bang, bang. Sure. By the time I was done with them, they were questioned whether they were even saved or not. You know why? Because they went to church. Oh, they had a Baptist name on the church. Oh, they all had the right Bibles, but they were not sound spiritually and mentally when it comes to that book. That's my goal for you. That's why I teach you the Bible with the intensity that I do. That's why I don't get hung up in all these other things. I get hung up on one thing, and it's the book that I'm preaching out this morning, because I know that if you become sound mentally and spiritually in that book, nothing will phase you. Now, when you get to that point, now you have discretion. Now you have discernment. So now you take on the evil man. You know what you do? You go buy every book, by every secular psychologist, historian, everybody you can get. You read everything you can get your hands on. I used to go to the UMKC library and buy all them textbooks on science and this and that. that they were, and I would digest them. I, got the, I, got, I buy them all on psychology. And I, you know what I was doing? I was going through every one of those books. Science, education, Art, religion, theology, you name it. Every psychiatry, everybody I could get my hands on, I would read. I read everything that the most Baptist preachers tell you, don't read, it'll mess you up. No, no, no. The reason why you're messed up, because the Baptist preacher telling you that, has never prepared you mentally and spiritually to be sound. No, no, no. You get the book down, you devour everything that unsaved man ever wrote against the things of God. And then you have, because you have the ability to discern. And as you see what's right and you see what's wrong, you become a formidable weapon for God in His arsenal to be able to take on anybody. And you'll know more about the Catholic Church than most Catholics do. You'll know more about the Jehovah Witnesses than most Jehovah Witnesses do. You'll know more about what they believe than they believe. And when you have that ability... You also get the ability to use it right, and you win them to Christ. And you love them, and you deal with them, and you show them. But what it does, it gives you discretion over the evil man. Discretion over the evil man, whose way wants to confuse you and discourage you, and confuse you in all the annals of things that... Uh, that uh, so I was listening to a radio program today, and they were talking about how dejunct our, our uh, eternal revenue system is. That every year they keep adding tax laws and tax laws and tax laws and tax laws and tax laws. And he said, you know what? He says, he says, we need to overhaul the tax system in our country. It is absolutely out of control. And he said, you know what? Right now as we speak, there are 19 volumes, 5 inches thick each, of rules and regulations from the IRS 
that they have to follow with codes and everything about how it all works, what you can take, what you can't. And he says, there isn't anybody in the IRS who even understands. It's a monster that has gotten totally out of control. And the IRS stands there and they say they pretend like they know and they pretend like they got it figured out, but they don't. They don't. They know it less than, than, than we know it. And I'm telling you, that's what the world does. The world makes it in so many thick volumes and so complex and so hard and so unbelievable to reach that you just look at it and you just, just say, there's no way I'll understand all this. Just like you look at the tax laws and you say, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. That's what the devil does. That's what the evil man does when he, he portrays history with the complexity and the depth and the magnitude that masks the simplicity that is in Christ. And last week we talked about the evil man. And we talked about how that the evil man represented the ologies of man. Man-made concept without God for the purpose of destroying your faith in the Word of God. And you find it in the universities. You find it in the, in the colleges. You find it in the Bible college. You find it everywhere. Because that was the strange man's mission and he accomplished it. And then today, we're going to talk about the counterpart. We're going to talk about the strange woman. And the strange woman, my friend, will represent religion. The two ways that the devil destroys man and the two ways by which he takes control of the world is one through politics or the organizational structure of knowledge in a secular sense and religion. The organized uh, concept of religion coming together to portray uh, uh, Christ and God, but in a false way that damns people's souls to hell. And let me just say again, please, do not be so naive. Do not be so naive that you think that every church on the face of this planet and every man that stands in the pulpit and everybody who gets up and talks about Christ is God's man. I'm telling you, I hope you're not that naive. You can't even get out of the New Testament before Jesus takes on the scribes and the Pharisees. And he, and, and he, he just, he, he, he fights with them all the time. And they were his people. They claimed to believe the same God that he did. It was he that they rejected. And there's where the problem lies today. Oh yes. Yeah, it, for sure. But I'm telling you something. You're about to enter in, when you study this strange woman today, we're about to enter in the most complex, the most unbelievable study that entails the whole history of man. Now, there isn't any way that I'm going to do this justice this morning, but I'm going to try to whet your appetite and give you the high points. But I'm telling you what, if you want to study this thing in depth, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a five-year venture. And you need to do it at some time in your life. But I'm telling you, you need to understand what this strange woman is. Now, if we would go to the libraries today, we would find thousands and thousands of books, but, and we'd have to wait our way through it, but, Fortunately, as always, the Bible makes it pretty easy. Because the Bible told us last week that, that the devil wanted to destroy you and me and our minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. So the Bible is very clear. Here's what the Bible says. First of all, you don't have to turn to these because we're going to be going to, through a bunch of them, but you can just write them down look them up later. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We talked last week about the law of first mention. Now, we went back and we saw where that the Satan, first time he shows up is in Genesis chapter 3. And the first time he shows up, his purpose is to destroy man, destroy mankind, destroy man's soul in hell, and to take over everything that God has. And the first words out of his mouth is, Yea, hath God said, and then he changes what God said. 
And we talked about that last week, how he came to Eve, and that set the foundation for which the devil is going to operate. He's going to take what the Word of God says and then change the concept to destroy man. So the Bible says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 through 15, it says this, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers are transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians that the devil transforms himself into an angel of light. He transforms himself into God. He wants to mask religion. And he masks it all down through history, which you're going to see today. And he's masking it today. Now, I'm not one of these foolish people that believes that Baptists are the only ones who are going to go to heaven. I don't believe that for a moment. Most Baptist churches, they become all-inclusive, and they think if you ain't a Baptist, that you ain't going to heaven. I don't buy that. I heard a story one time where a guy died, and he went to heaven. And when he got up there, he met St. Peter, and they're walking around, and he's coming over to here, and he, he goes, and heaven had all these big rooms. And he walks in here and there's a bunch of people eating chicken. He asks St. Peter, says, uh, what is this? And he says, oh, these are all the Methodists. He says, oh, okay. Walks in another big room and a bunch of people playing bingo. He said, what's this group? He says, oh, those are all the Catholics. He says, okay. Walks into this other room and there's signs all over the place. Shut up, be quiet, no speaking, no talking. Nobody says anything. And he says, well, who's this group? He says, oh, these are the Baptists. What are all the signs for? Because they think they're the only ones up here. <laughs> you know what? That's not the way it works. You know how it works? It works when you ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart and save you. Now, what you do with what you've got after that may be another story. But if you think joining this church is going to save you, or joining any church is going to save you, you're crazy. You get saved because you see your personal need in a personal Savior. You put aside your Baptist traditions, your Catholic traditions, your Methodist chicken, or whatever the case may be, and you simply come to Him, nothing in your hand, simply clinging to the cross and say, God, save me. And I'm telling you, that's the way you get saved. The devil shows up. He wants to make salvation religion. He wants to make it church. He wants to make it formal. He wants to give you a set of rules. He wants to do everything he can do to get you off track. Let me just tell you something. Now, you may not be able to grasp this right now, but it's the truth. If the devil walked in that door right there, came up down here, across here, and stood right there, and the Lord Jesus Christ come in the same door, walked around this side, came up here and stood on this side, and you got the devil over here and Christ over here, you know what? I'm going to tell you a dying truth. You could not tell them apart this morning. You see, you've got the concept that the devil's red suit, cleft foot, long tail, horns, and a pitchfork. That's your concept of the devil. And you think your concept of Christ is, well, my mother had a picture of him, you know, and he's got the long brown hair and the flowing beard and, the, you know, nice general features, you know. And, you know, I saw him one time in a picture, you know, carrying a little sheep with a staff, you know, and a little sheep around him, you know, little sandals on and a little white robe. And it was the, the that's your concept. You know what? Let me tell you something. The devil is the greatest imitator of Christ the world has ever seen. You know how you know that? You get discernment. You know how you get discernment? You get a book. The Bible says he's an angel of light. He transforms himself into an angel of light. 
And when he transformed himself into the light, I'm telling you, if a devil walked down on this side and Christ did on this side, you couldn't tell him apart. He'd, you say, oh, I'd know him. I'd know him by the nail scars in his hands. No, the devil's got him too. Don't you know those statues down in South America, Central America, they bleed on Easter? You think that's God? Think you got little Mexicans up there with little blood things squirting behind so you can't see him? No, that's the devil. He's an imitator. He imitates him. And you can come up with every concept you wanted how you'd know which was which, and I'm telling you, you can't tell them apart. There's only one way you can. You know what that way is? Who shall discover the face of his garment? You know how I know? If the devil walked in here and came here, and the Christ walked over here and came up here, you know how I know which one was right? Because my Bible says, I've got a more sure word of prophecy. And that more sure word of prophecy in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 is more sure, if you go to the preceding verse, than the very voice of God. Or how I know which one is which is because in the day and age when I live, God doesn't manifest Himself down here in any form. He's inside me. So when the devil shows up and somebody says, Oh, I saw a light from heaven and I know it was God and God spoke to me or I saw this or I was driving down the road and a lightning or I saw the clouds and they float into a shape of, 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 of Christ in his face and I can see the beard. Oh, yes, yeah. No, no, no. You got the wrong Christ. There are two in the Bible. The devil is the greatest imitator in this world. I'll show you. In Revelation chapter 19, the Bible says when Christ returns, He comes on a white horse. Revelation chapter 6, when the Antichrist comes, He shows up on a white horse. Imitate. Imitate. Christ is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9. Devil's called the priest, uh, a prince in John chapter 14. Devil's called, uh, Christ is called the right hand of God down through all through the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 144, verse 8, Satan is called the false right hand. Revelation chapter 19, the Bible says Jesus is king. Job chapter 41, the devil's king. John chapter 20, Jesus was called God. Second Corinthians chapter 4, the devil's called God. John chapter 8, Jesus is light. Second Corinthians chapter 11, the devil's light. Revelation chapter 5, Jesus Christ is a lion of the tribe of Judah. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the devil's a lion going around whom he may devour. He imitates him every form and fashion. And there's only one way you can get the discernment to figure out what is real and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil when it comes to the strange woman and the evil man. You know how the devil operates? I've told you this before. I'm going to say it again. You'll probably hear it another thousand times before Christ comes back. And he's probably coming back Friday. I mean, good Friday. He'd come back good Friday, wouldn't he? You know how the devil operates? It's one little word. It's called latitude. Latitude. You know what latitude is? I'll show you. You have a point right here. And you have to stop right here. You know what's in between? That's called latitude. The distance between there and there. I mean, it's called distance. It's called space. You can measure it and say it was 10 feet. But it's latitude. It's from there to there. It's the latitude that you have from that wall to that pulpit. You know how the devil operates? God's given you an absolute standard. You ever notice when the devil showed up to Jesus? Every time he shows up and tries to tempt him, 
tries to get him to do something. You ever notice how the Lord never got into a conversation with him? He never started, he never started going to the place where uh, he tried to argue with him for five minutes. Do you ever notice there's a difference between how Jesus dealt with the devil than Eve dealt with the devil? You ever notice that comparison? When the devil shows up to Eve and the, and the devil says, Yea, hath God said, Oh, Eve just... She's in it, man. Boy, she jumps right into that thing. She's going, man. She starts to get theological. She says, oh, you want to study the Bible? Oh, I'd be glad to study the Bible. There she goes. And the devil tricked her into that. When he comes to Christ, he says to Christ, hey, you're the Son of God. I'll tell you what. Make these breads into stone. You know what the Lord said? It is written. One verse. Bang! Come up the high top. Bang! It is written. Every time the devil showed up to Christ, he didn't get in a dissertation with him, and he was God's son. He's showing us a model of how you deal with the devil in your life when he comes in like he did with Eve. It simply is. It is written. You know what you do when you just give the devil the book back? You don't give him any latitude. You know how the devil works in your life? He'll work in a life in the latitude you give him. You know what the latitude is? That right there, you know what that is? That's what God says. You know what this is here? That's what you do. The distance you have in the middle is where the devil plays. Keep the distance down to a minimum. Ephesians 4.27 says it when he says, Give no place to the devil. Don't give him any latitude. Stay with the book. The book will never forsake you. The book will get you through when, when nothing else will. And I'm telling you, when the devil, when the devil came to Eve, that's exactly what he did in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. He got Eve talking about this and that. And old Evie baby just jumped into the theological discussion way over her head. And before she's known it, she's ripping up the Bible just like he did. Jesus, on the other hand, said, you know what, pal? It's written. Book, chapter, verse. You know what the devil did after three shots? Left him. Why? Because three strikes and you're out. You never knew baseball was built on Matthew chapter 3, did you? That's okay. That's okay. I'll teach you a lot of neat things. I'm still trying to figure out why in baseball the umpires have to be named Al. Well, they all got their name on their hat, Al. I don't figure it out. I've seen John. John's deceptive. I've seen John umpire in baseball. His name ain't Al. I don't know those things. But I know this. I know discernment. Discernment will keep you from the evil man and it will keep you from the strange woman. And that's what exactly he did. She gave place to the devil and you give the devil two inches and he'll drive an 18-wheeler through it. You never can give him any latitude. You can never give him any latitude from what the book says and what you do. And when you try to get creative, when you try to get theological, when you try to get fancy, all you do is just lift that latitude up and he just plays through it. Give no place. 
The book is the book, and that's what it says. And when he comes to you with this, or he comes to you with that, or he tempts you with this, it is written. End of discussion. Now, this strange woman in the Bible is defined many times. She's probably one of the most talked about subjects in all the Bible. She goes right along with the devil. Now, in the Old Testament, this woman is represented by Baal worship. Baal is the worship of the sun god. I'm not going to give you a a big dissertation on Baal worship, but Baal worship was the worship of the sun. And Baal worship goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the first nine chapters, you have God doing some things. You have the flood, you have all of that. And in Genesis chapter 10, you have what is commonly called the genealogy of the Gentiles. And in Genesis chapter 10, you find the first Gentile kingdom. And it's represented in the last, and when the Lord comes back, you're going to find the last Gentile kingdom. And they're, they're the same religion on both ends. And when you come down there, the man back then is Nimrod. He's listed in your Bible. Now Nimrod is an interesting guy. Because Nimrod is a mighty hunter. Nimrod is the beginning of Baal worship as we know it throughout the Old Testament. Nimrod uh, shows up uh, back there. He's in Babylon. That's right where Baghdad is today. In fact, Hussein thought he was Nimrod incarnate. And he wanted to rebuild Babylon. That's where Baghdad is. And uh, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. And here's what happened. Nimrod dies. And Nimrod's wife, after Nimrod's death, kind of takes over. You see, Nimrod was the evil man. His mother, or his wife, Tamaranus, was the strange woman. Always got him matched up through the Bible. And his wife now, after his death, she claims that Nimrod has now become the sun god. And lo and behold, she finds herself with child through no man. She never had a son with, with Nimrod. Now suddenly she has, she's with child and she says, my child has been divinely conceived by my husband Nimrod who is the God of the sun. And lo and behold, she says, this is Nimrod reborn. Oh man, you find a virgin birth long before Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's just the wrong one. But the devil's an angel of light. Counterfeit virgin birth. She says, Nimrod has now become the sun god. So they begin to worship the sun. Baal means bull. So they, in more ways than one. So they, 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 they bring up, they bring up the calves. That's why in the back in Exodus chapter, uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, Aaron makes the golden calves. The, the Assyrian empire, they had a winged bull. And all the nations and the religions that got to this, they always worshiped the golden calves. Gold because it's like the sun. Shiny. Men love gold because it reminds them of the sun. And it's it, 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 all the way through it. And so they overlaid this stuff with gold. They put, then they kissed the calves. They did all this. They did all that. Then they had, they had human sacrifices. They, uh, Psalm 16 talked about somebody drinking blood and they ate flesh and a can, a bale, 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 can of, you know, when the natives over there, they eat people, they're called what? 
cannibals. Cannibal, cannibal. B-A-L, bull, bail, bail. The word bail is in the word cannibal. You know where the word cannibal comes from? It comes from bail where they ate sacrifices. So somebody in Africa that eats people as a cannibal, it's canna, carne, like chili con carne, meat eater. That's where it comes from. Don't get mad at me because I know something you don't. Don't laugh at me. Jimmy just underlined the word bull and put a circle around it. I want to know what he's doing that for. He's looking at me like, anyway. Now, all the Baal worship had a female deity. In Genesis chapter 10, it was Nimrod's wife. When you come through the Old Testament, you'll find in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah, places like that, Jeremiah chapter 44, she's called the Queen of Heaven. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter. Easter is not a Bible word. The concept of Easter is not a Bible concept. No, I know we're going to have an Easter service next week. No, we won't have a sunrise service. No, sorry. 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 No sunrise service. And I don't know how Baptist churches do that. I I, sometimes I just think that some of these preachers were hung on meat hooks for too long or something. I don't figure it out. What, a sunrise service. What, what Sunrise. Well, yeah, I want to come out in the morning and we want to stand out here in the cold and we want to say, we want to see what we're going to do. We're going to go someplace and we'll watch the sun. I've known churches, they go, well, we're just all going to get together. We're going to have, an, we're going to have outside sunrise service. They all get there, you know, and it's still dark. <laughs> People are coming in. Everybody's quiet because it's a holy moment, you know. And you're sitting down there, you know, and everybody's saying, and the pastor takes something like this. Well, we're here today, and, you know, we just need to reflect today on what it must have been like back there when they came to the tomb. It was dark just like this. They came to anoint the body, so we met together just like they did. About that time, a little nine-year-old says, where's the tomb, preacher? Shut up, kid. I'm not done yet. <clears throat> well, we're in a pasture, and there's cows over there. They smell really bad. What tomb? You say, they did, well, we don't have a tomb. If they had, Shut up, kid. And you go on to that thing and say, now let's just stand here and reflect. Then you watch the sun come up. And you say, oh yeah, look at the sun coming up. Oh, this is how it was. The sun was coming up and I can almost see Mary coming down that road. About that time, three heifers crossed the road over there. You know what I'm saying? The little kid said, there they are, I see them, shut up! <laughs> we won't have one of those. You know why? Because no church in the New Testament, Book of Acts, ever had one. That stuff doesn't come into Constantine in 325 A.D., because you know why? Because Easter is Ashtar. Ashtar is the female deity of the Zidonians. She is a god of fertility. So next week, and bring all your friends. We're going to have a great message. And wear your Ashtar bonnet with all your frills upon it. And we'll have an Ashtar parade. I use it. But you know what? I got discernment. I ain't going out in the morning to watch the sun come up like the Baal worshippers used to do. What do you think Stonehenge is? Well, Stonehenge is a thing. It looks like a head, but when you jump over, you find out it's made of rock. Oh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Stonehenge is in England. It's a position of rocks with, with rocks all around, and it's set up that on the equinox, that in the right time of the year, that those pagan Baal worshippers went around there, and the sun lined up with this and with that, and the sun made all kinds of streaks down through there, hit all kinds of spots, and they worshiped the sun god. So we won't be doing it. The day star that I'm looking for arising won't be up next morning at 6.30. It's going to arise in my heart with the rapture of the church. That's the only sunrise I'm looking for.
I'm not a morning person. Can you tell? <laughs> but that morning will be different. I won't need an alarm clock. So we see Baal worship. Female deities. You find that in Acts chapter 19 with the great goddess Diana. You find that all down through history. Because Baal worship, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, is the religion that the devil orchestrates to counterfeit God's religion. And you said, well, yeah, Bob, but how in the world could anybody ever mistake that for, for the truth? Well, Israel did. Oh, Israel did. Boy, when that Baal worship got operating back there in 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles and those places, they left God so quick and made His head spin. I ain't kidding you. I mean, Baal worship starts its foundation, it's the foundation of all religions. I don't care where you go today. In this world, down through history, Baal worship and all false religions start in Genesis chapter 10 with female deities, human sacrifices, worshiping in the sun, high towers, and everything else that goes along with it. And when you come down through history, you find it impacting everything in this world. I mean, every religion traces itself back to Baal. I don't care. I don't care if it's the American Indians, if it's the Aztecs, if it's the, in uh, the, the Incas uh, in South America, in Africa, in the Far East, in the Middle East, if it's Buddha, if it's Confucian, if it's Brahmism, even in America today, every religion that is in Bible-based, and I'm not talking about Baptist, I'm talking about Bible-based, runs right back to Genesis chapter 10. They all are in the same boat. So in the Old Testament, she, they worship the sun, they have female deities, they worship the bull, and they worship Baal, who, through Easter and Christmas, that's his birthday, December 25th, the birthday of Baal, back in Genesis chapter 10, when all this stuff took place, was December 25th. It's been time, and you can go a hundred places in your Bible and figure that out. Now, I am sorry if you're sitting here to say and saying, well, I just don't believe he, I, I just don't believe, I, okay, fine. You know what? There's a lot of people who don't believe rattlesnakes will kill you, but you pick one up, you'll find out the reality of that message. It'll bite you. Now, in the New Testament, she's defined many places, but Revelation chapter 17, verse 5 is the greatest one. And again, don't turn to it. She's called Babylon, or excuse me, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And the abomination of the earth. Alright, first part. Mystery, Babylon the Great. She's a mystery. She starts in Genesis chapter 10, and she worms her way through history, through the Bible. She destroys everything that God tries to set up where she can, and she is a mystery. She starts out as a pagan, and she winds up in the 21st century as the organized religions of this world, who put their emphasis on everything except the Word of God. Remember now, Job chapter 41, we talked about it a couple of Thursday nights ago. God says, when it comes to the devil, I will not conceal his parts, his portion, or his comely proportion. And you can discover the face of his garments if you get discernment. I'm not a very smart individual. I just believe what God wrote. And because of this, and she is mystery Babylon the Great, 
And down through history, you can find the chain of events that as you go through secular history, you go through American history, you go through world history, you go through European history, you'll be lost to it. When you get the Bible, you'll find it and trace it through and you'll understand in complete clarity this mystery is unveiled. Then the next part of that title is the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots. And the reason why she's called the mother of harlots, I've already given you the answer. She is the key and the foundation for every false religion on the face of the planet today. I I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Every false religion on this planet today. Now you get into the Far East, you get some weird stuff, but it, it follows the same basic line. But you're going to find in America, every false religion in America, for fall, and I don't care what they call themselves. And I'm not against anybody. I'm just preaching the facts. But every false religion in America, I don't care where you go, it will be founded on these same things and they'll all believe the same thing. You know what they are? First of all this, every one of them will believe that you've got to be baptized to be saved. Baptism regeneration. You know why? Because it goes back to Baal worship. They believe that you get your sins away by being washed with water. Every one of them. Every one of them. You know what? I can name you six false religions in America right now. Every one of them believe you have to be baptized to go to heaven, but none of them will accept the other church's baptism of salvation. It's only theirs. That's the second thing about them. They're totalitarian in their concept. It's their way or the highway. Every one of them will believe that their church is the only true church. I don't believe there's any true church other than the spiritual church that you're born into the day you get saved. You think, you say, well, this is the Baptist church. Let me tell you something. This is the good Baptist church based on the Bible. But if you've got some time this afternoon and you buy me lunch, I'll take you around and show you some weirdos. Forget the lunch. After I'm done showing you, you won't want to eat. Well, there's Baptist church in this country. You go into their main foyer and they got a statue of Buddha there. You got Baptist churches that think that, they're, that they run like the mafia. Don't you ever think that I'm for any church? You say, well, you call yourself a Baptist. Yeah, you know why? Because I believe what the Bible teaches and they're the Bible-believing group. So I identify myself with them. But if, if I had my way with it, and you ask me what I am, and I've had people ask me that. I was there one time and it says, now what church do you go to? And I said, well, they said, uh, what, what denomination? I said, well, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And he said, okay, but what, what denomination are you? And I said, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's all the farther I take it. Well, you don't go to, yeah, I go to church. Where do you go? Well, I go to a Baptist church. Well, then you're a Baptist. No, I'm not a Baptist. I'm a Bible. He couldn't get it. I go to a Baptist church, I've started a Baptist church simply because I believe that the Baptists have a heritage, but you know what? I'm not such a fool to think that there aren't Baptist churches you couldn't go to in this town or any town in this country that you hear the guy and leave, you'd be lost as a goose. It isn't about the church. It's about what you got in your heart. don't care what you are. don't care what denominational ticket you hang around your neck. Are you saved? Now, once you get saved, you may say, well, I can't stay in that anymore, but that's your call, not mine. But I know this, I know they're all the same. I know they all teach baptism and generation for salvation. I'll tell you something else. Every one of them steals the promises given to Israel and say now they, they, they apply to them. That's why they dump the book of Revelation. 
That's why they, they bring in Old Testament sacrifices and, 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 and holy days and all that stuff. Because they, every one of them, I, I don't care where you go. They're all, all millennial, they're post-millennial, there ain't a one of them that's pre-millennial because they believe that God is finished with Israel and now they are the called the elect that God replaced the nation of Israel with. Go take a long walk off a short pier. And I'll tell you something else. They believe that if you don't join their church and get baptized in their water, with their baptism, under their church covenant, doctrine, slash, whatever the case may be, you can never, never, never be saved. See, everybody beats up on the poor Catholics for that. I have a lot more respect for Catholics than I do a lot of the other little penny punk-nosed religions that are around here ain't worth the powder blow them to hell. And, and Catholics get a bad name sometimes because they're, they're always, and it, it, a lot of it may be true, but the bottom line is, they're not, I'm telling you what, there are many churches out there and said, if you don't come to my church and you don't get baptized in our baptistry and you don't get baptized by our covenant of our church, you can never be saved. To which I always said, what about the thief on the cross? How did he get baptized? Did that ever bother you? You see somebody gets up there and he says, well, baptism regeneration, you got to be saved. The Bible says you baptized. you got to get baptized. Baptized in water. Baptism saves you. Bible, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Mr. Sin, you shall see the Holy Ghost. you got to be baptized. you got to be baptized. you got to be baptized. And people hear that and they say, wow, he's up there. I'm down here. I'm just a little guy. He's been to Bible college. He's down there. He's just preaching, preaching, preaching. Baptism. He must be right. He must be right. Now the guy with the sermon says, baptism. i got to be baptized to be saved. i got to be baptized in your church to be saved. Well, first of all, the thief on the cross never got baptized, and Jesus did say, today thou will be with me in paradise? Second problem is, your church wasn't anywhere around when that happened. So how did the thief get off that cross? Did he say, hey boys, could you do me a little favor here? I know you don't believe this guy, and the other guy on the other side doesn't believe it either, but you know what? I do. Now look, let's be reasonable. Could I get about a 15-minute break? No, 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 no. I didn't say a 15 femur break. I said a 15 minute break. Just, can I get down for a minute? I, I mean, I just believed. I believe he's the son of God. And he said this day he's going to be in paradise. But I haven't been baptized yet. And I need to get baptized. And, and so if you just cut me a little slack, I know you're going to kill me crucified. Sure, no problem. I'll be back. I promise. I'll be back. I'll be back. I just, I, I just want to get over here. And you know what? We don't even have to go far. Because we can just get water out of the canteen. I just need to get sprinkled. And, uh, and then I'll be back and we'll finish this job. And you know, it'll be fine. No. He didn't get off that cross. He died. Never got baptized. I heard, you know what that's called? That's called discernment. Somebody says, you've got to be baptized, 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 and baptism of salvation, baptism of salvation. Really? Did you ever study first the book of 1 Corinthians? You know the church at Corinth is the screwed, most screwed up church the world has ever seen. Did you ever study that? You know what they're arguing about in chapter 1? They're arguing about in chapter 1, they are arguing about who baptized who. You know what they're arguing about in chapter 3? They're arguing about who won who to Christ. Now, if they're both the same, why do we have two different arguments about two different things? You know what that's called? That's called discernment. God gives you the ability to pick up little things that tells you the guy's lying. And then what you do with it from there, 
Latitude. See, I don't have a problem with it. I just take the guy, his message, the church, little T, <laughs> check the wind. And then Jesus over there in his grandstands holding up John 3.16 says, touchdown. <laughs> but that's just me. Part of my charm. You know, you see it in Matthew chapter 13. I don't know if you ever studied it or not. In Matthew chapter 13, you have the parables. In verse 33, you have a parable of the of the leaven. And you got a woman. Wonder who she'd be. Who takes leaven? False doctrine, book of Galatians. And you got meal. Meal's made of wheat, wheat are type of people. And she takes the little bit of leaven, mixes it with the meal until the whole meal is destroyed. And the Bible says in the book of Galatians, a little leaven, leaven the whole lump. It's a picture of this woman taking the Baal worship, mixing it into the New Testament Christianity, and destroying the concept of God's church. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Now, if you look at this woman down here, I want you to see this. Come down here to verse, it says, uh, it says down here in verse uh, 16. It says, the liberty from the strange woman, even the stranger which flattereth with her words. All right, this church will flatter you with words. This woman, will fl- she'll use nice religious words, holy words, Christian words. She'll talk about Easter. She'll talk about the brotherhood of man. She'll talk about the fatherhood of God. She'll talk about love your brother. She'll talk about love your enemy, love your neighbor. I mean, she'll go down through the... She, this woman will lay out everything the way you want it to hear it. I mean, she'll talk about all the good things. Because the Bible says Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. She will say with all the wonderful, lovey, gushy, powery stuff she can say that her church is the only church. And if you ain't baptized in our church and you ain't done it our way and you don't become one of us, you can never make it. But she will make that sound so acceptable. She will run you to the Bible and give you verse after verse after verse. It means absolutely nothing about what she says. And there'll be no room for discussion. You find these churches coming up in in, in Europe during the Middle Ages. And they all worship the sun. To them, they're talking about a different sun that you and I are worshiping. So they they have a theology of architecture. You see it in Germany. You see it in France. You see it in the great cathedrals. All through Europe. The reason why they put stained glass windows in them is so that when the sun comes up in the morning, the sun filters through the stained glass windows and shines down and sets the holy mood for God to be in our presence. Oh, it's so beautiful. Walk into those churches and everybody whispers, We're in the place of God. What? Didn't hear you. Where? I need to talk to him. 
I'm telling you. I mean, you can talk about the theology of architecture. You know what Meridiana is? Meridian is it goes across the sky. You know what Meridiana is? It was back in the it was back in the uh, in the 12th, 13th, 14th century when they built these great cathedrals. They put little holes that were lined up with the sun. That when 12 o'clock on Sunday, you think Sunday is a Christian term? I know we use it. You know what it's called in the Bible? It's called the first day of the week. No Christian on the face of this planet would ever use the word Sunday. You know why? Because Sunday goes back to the day the Bay worship to worship God on Sunday, and they had the service when it was 12 o'clock when the sun was right overhead, and that's why the Bible never calls it Sunday. It calls it first day of the week. That's called discernment. Meridiana is that they drill these holes and they put them just right that at 12 o'clock every day the light would come down through those big churches and it would all focus on a spot and it would give the appearance of something holy coming down over the altar of God. I'm telling you, you need discernment. I'm not fighting anybody. I don't care. You think I care? You see churches all across this city big spirals, crosses on top. And in the old medieval times, they built the churches that way, so when you came to town, you know exactly where the church was. But Baal worship has towers. And the Bible says in the book of Galatians, as cursed is he that hangeth on a cross. Cross is not a religious symbol. You say, now look, Bob, don't get personal. My, 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 my husband gave me a cross with diamonds on it when we got on our anniversary. I'm not fighting it. I don't care. I don't care. Well, I think my grandmother gave me my cross before she died, you know, and I wear it around my neck, and I just don't... I, that's fine. I'm not, hey, I am not fighting it. I love your grandmother. I wish she'd have left me one. I'd have popped them diamonds up, bit up the fast cast so face you wouldn't know what hit you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't care. I'm just thankful. <clears throat> I'm just thankful that he, he wasn't killed in an electric chair. It'd be tough putting an electric chair around your neck, carrying it. I'm just glad he wasn't shot with a firing squad. What is that little M14 hanging around your neck for? Well, that's, I'm a Christian. The crucifixion was the Roman form of capital punishment. There wasn't anything religious with it. Nobody in the first, second, third century ever had a crucifix. It's fine if you want one. I don't care, but just understand. I don't care if you have Santa Claus on a Christmas tree. I do. I don't care. I don't care if you have an Easter egg hunt. I do. I, I, like, getting, I like getting presents. I don't have a problem. But I understand where it comes from, and I don't significant, put any significant religious impact. When I get up next Sunday, I'm not going to feel more holy because I'm watching the sun come up, and it's Ashtar Day. But boy, I get between the pages of this book, and you feel something from God then, you see. So I don't care. I'm just thankful. I mean, I could, I, I'm glad. If we ever have a, our own church building, we won't have a steeple and we won't have a cross. I, I, just, I just thank God. Every time I drive by a big old church with a big old steeple, big old cross, and I just say to myself, God, I am so thankful that you weren't killed in a car wreck. Could you see how stupid would be a car up on top of that thing? <laughs> a gas chamber. Oh, well, how do you fake that? Just put a big box up there and put gas on it. And then when everybody comes in to get filled up, just tell them it's a church. I'll tell you something else. 
Now, if I'm going to get on somebody's toes here this morning, I don't, don't be mad at me, please. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a loving guy. Get to know me. Come over. Eat my wife's lasagna. Come over. Let me grill you a couple hot dogs. Play with Buddy in the backyard. You'll be fine. But let me just tell you, I all see it all the time. You, you see, I see them on the back of cars. You see those fish things? Now, if you got one, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> and, and I never, and, and, and cool Christians, ah, they're so funny. They have no discernment. That little fish comes around like that. You see them on pins. I see preachers on television say, I want to I I give you this pin. And you know what? If you just send me a love gift of $75, I want you to have this pen for me. Any Christians out there saying, oh, man, Whew, I want one of them. Man, I got my buddy's got one. I want one of them. And now I'm looking at it saying, 75 bucks for that? Well, I bought me a, some Lucky Charm the other day and got me a little Richard Petty car in it for $1.98. <laughs> Give that car away, it's mine, boy. I'm into that, man. I love that. Mm. Mm. I'm gonna get old enough. Me and Barbara are gonna have some races in the kitchen. <laughs> and I, you know, and, and I'm thinking to myself, what is that? And here's what he tells you. You know what? In early Christianity, this was a sign for Christians. Because Christians were being severely persecuted by the Roman Empire. And when Christians wanted to meet secretly, They'd walk down the street, and where they were meeting, somebody would draw this fish on the door. And they would know, that's where we're meeting. Don't look at it. It's here. See you tonight. <laughs> hey, the fish is on the door, Valerie. Tonight, don't look at it. Don't look at it. We don't want them to know we're there. Oh, come on. And the average Christian sits down there and believes that. Let me tell you something. You didn't need a fish sign in the first century to find the Christians. You know where they were? They were in the Colosseum getting ripped apart by the lions. They were getting hacked to pieces with the gladiators. They were getting put out there and their little kids were getting eaten live by pigs while mom and dad watched them because they wouldn't deny Christ. You didn't need that kind of garbage back then to find where the real believers were. You need it today. Judges chapter 5. Dagon, half man, half fish. Comes in in Constantine in 325. The fish, it had nothing to do with Christ. That's the Old Testament, Baal worship, Dagon counterpart, half man, half fish, Judges chapter 5. And you put the little, the little I-X-O-Y-E in the middle of it. You know what that stands for? Oh, it's great. It's great. It's called, it means, when you pray to break it all down, it means fish Christ. God of water salvation. And here's one on the back of Christian's car. Here's one. Yes, I've got, I've got one of those. Take that thing off and bury it. <laughs> Flattereth with her words. She will say everything. She will portray everything. She will give you the nice, soft approach and touch to everything. It'll be Good Friday, Holy Days, instead of Bad Wednesday when Christ was crucified. And Christians, I, I don't understand it. They wear their crosses, they buy their fishes, they put their dove pids on, they do everything in clear face of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, that says, make no 
image of anything of God, with any bird, with any fish, with anything. That's called, that's not even called discernment. That's called common sense. It says, forsaketh the guide of her youth. Hey, and the covenant with God. Paul hits this same bunch in Acts chapter 19 in the school of one Tyrannus there. And they want to be, they want to, they, they don't want to, they don't want to accept the way of Christ. They want to keep their baptism. And they want to keep baptizing. And the Bible says that he stays there for two years trying to work that thing out and finally they won't and he leaves. And that crop right there develops itself down the line that by the time the church of Ephesus shows up in Revelation chapter 2, that lady has come to the point where she has left her first love, the Word of God, and she is doing her own thing. Don't ever doubt it. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now this woman is likened to a harlot. If you go over to chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 7, uh, verse 22, you will find every aspect of her attack. Likened on a prostitute on a street corner with a young man coming by, and she flatters him with her lips, she winks at him with her eyes, she's got herself all perfumed and dressed up, and she says, come, she says, I have paid my vows, this hooker's religious, I have laid spices and all ornaments on my bed, and every come, let us make our fill of love till the morning, second coming of Christ. Bible says that she goes out in the night, church age, finding simple ones without Discretion, the Bible says, and takes them hold and kills them, and the way of her house inclineth unto death. Now, the greatest picture of this in the Old Testament, and I'm through, is found in First Kings chapter 16, verse 31. And the story of two people, they're always together Ahab, Jezebel, 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 Jezebel. Baal, Jezebel, Jezebel, where Baal, where her, Baal is in her name. Abraham, Ahab will represent the evil man. We studied him last week. He's the king. He represents the political organization, the allergies of man that are against God. Her, she represents the religious system. She's a prophetess from the Zidonians. Baal worshiper. And between Ahab and Jezebel, she destroys the nation of Israel. So much that when in the, in the church period of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2 verse 20, at the church of Thyatira, Thyatira, which is around 1200 AD, he says, notwithstanding I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed idol. There's a Jezebel back there in Kings. There's a Jezebel in, 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 in the early church history. And you know what? It's not the same woman. It's just the same religion. Mystery. Mystery Babylon the Great. You go back in 1 Kings, you know what happens, 16? The Bible makes it very clear that he takes her to wife. They get married. Ahab, Jezebel, get married. You want to know where this evil man and this woman get married in church history? 
800 A.D., Christmas Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Roman king is Charlemagne. Charles the Gross. In the classical, Big Chuck to his friends. And Pope Leo was the Pope. And Pope Leo's buddies kind of got upset with him because of some things, and they lead a little revolt, and Pope Leo gets kicked off the throne. Almost gets killed. Well, he runs over to Charlemagne, Big Chuck, and he says, hey, look, they've kicked me off the throne. I don't know what to do. I, I, mean, uh, I mean, to this time now, Rome was a political organization, and it had a religious organization with it, but they weren't connected yet. You had the evil man and you had the woman, but they weren't connected. So what happens is that Charlemagne, he goes over there and he says, hey, you know what? I'll fix it for you. He takes his armies, goes over there, kills all of Pope Leo's enemies, puts Pope Leo back on the Golden Basilica, says, there you are, buddy, it's all yours. He says, I don't know how to thank you. And he says, I'll tell you what, let's have a coronation day. And Big Chuck says, that's great. On 800 A.D., December 25th, in front of the whole world, Charlemagne, Charles the Gross, knelt down before Pope Leo. And Pope Leo said this, Charles Augustus, this day, crowned king by God. Picks that throne up. Puts it on his head. Steps back. Charles gets up. He says, congratulations, king. Chuck says, thank you, God. From that day on, they were connected. Big Chuck goes back. He gets to be king. Pope Leo gets the best deal. He gets to be God. From that poet on, the evil man and the woman are one. Just like Ahab and Jezebel were married and he destroyed all of Israel. That's called discernment. That's called discretion. And that comes because a young man or a young lady believes this book more than anything else put up by the evil man and the strange woman. I don't fight anybody. I don't care what anybody believes. You know what? I don't have to give an account for you. I don't have to give an account for you. I've got to give an account for me and my family. I don't care what you believe. Don't get mad at me. I could care less. Help yourself. But I feel like Paul this morning, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? You have to make up your own mind. I told you before, somebody said one time, well, brother, I just don't know where you get all that. It's a conspiracy, man. They hide it in books. <laughs> You've got to read. But before you read, you have to get you an absolute. Otherwise, you're going to get caught in that stuff. Now, I gave you a lot of stuff today. I gave you a ton of stuff, and I'm done. But let me just say this to you. I, I, I didn't give you one-tenth of what I could have. We could be here all day. I know, thank God we're not. I know, but I'm just saying. How, with all that material, would you ever discern what is right and what is wrong without an absolute standard? You would be lost in this, man. You'd be running around looking at everything religious and everything that's going off, and you'd be going on your feelings, instead of the facts of the Word of God. Now, my goal is simple for you. 
If you come to this church, if you stay in this church, I'll help you any way you can. Or if you just want to visit and don't ever want to join, I don't care. But the bottom line is get discernment. Get the Bible. Let either somebody disciple you, let me help you, whatever it takes, but get on that path that you're going to learn what the Bible says so when you're out on your own in your job with your family, and I would talk about history, that same book will help you make decisions in your family, in your workplace, anywhere you are. It isn't relegated to history. It's everything. But it all starts with you coming to that book saying, God, that's it. I'm going to learn that, and whatever your opinion is is going to become my opinion. End of story. And that's where it starts. Every head bowed and every eye closed.